Welcome to Aesthetics Mastery, the podcast to help you thrive and raise the bar in your aesthetics practice. I'm Dr. Adam Chong. And I'm Dr. Tim Pierce. Tim Pierce is a general practitioner, director of Skin Viva and Skin Viva Training. And Dr. Adam Chong is also a general practitioner, um, an aesthetic trainer, and a, an aesthetic clinician at Skin Viva. I keep looking at the camera today. I don't know why, for some reason. I'm highly aware that they're, they're watching us. It's, uh, yeah, there are now three. We used to just have one. In fact, we used to have none. So if you, uh, if you don't know already, you can watch this podcast on YouTube as well, mm-hmm. on the Skin Viva training page. That's true. Um, so Tim, it's great to be back. It's been about two or three weeks. And since we last spoke, you have been to the Aesthetics Awards in London. Yes, yeah. It was, uh, it's nice to get out there and meet all the people that we come across online. Um, and I think probably the best bit for me was... Um, not so much the award ceremony, though. Although we did do uh, quite well, um, it's it's the number of people who meet you and give you anecdotes of uh, back of things you've said or things you've done to help. And the podcast came up a lot, so I'm pleased that people are listening to it and they're finding it helpful. That's nice to hear. Um, and on that note, um, it would be great to get some more uh, feedback from, about the podcast. I was having a little browse uh, for the first time in a while. Um, I had a look on iTunes, and we're up there. And we've got a review. Oh, wow. <laughs> we've got a five-star review, but it'd be, be great to get some more. So. Oh, thank you for that. I didn't, yeah. I didn't even know that until you told me. Yeah, yeah That's yeah. great. So, yeah, if you've been helped by this podcast or you're listening to it, please review us because that would be really yeah. nice to know that that's actually happening. I do believe, actually, we've got listeners from all over the world as well. There's a few in Australia and one in Dubai I've heard of. And so Yeah, there definitely are. Um, in fact, out. I've been contacted from people all over as well. So that's great yeah. to hear. So yeah, please, please give us uh, a review. Uh, that would that we'd really appreciate. And if you want to sponsor us, get in touch as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, today uh, we thought we'd continue our complications uh, conversation. We've already done two or three sessions now on Botox complications. So we're moving on to dermal fillers. So we've taken a few questions from the forum. Um, so we'll just go a few of these, if that's all right, Tim. Yes, let's do it. So first question from Lipun Tong, which is, what is the current thinking on filler migration? So, yeah, that's an interesting question. I think the first thing is, as any good clinician will tell you, is to is getting the correct diagnosis. So um, in that question is, is implied that the diagnosis is migration. And I, the first thing I do is take a step back and question whether that lump or bump or irregularity or bad aesthetic result that you're seeing is definitely due to migration or, or is it something else? Um, so, so one of the things, for example, is, is inflammation after a procedure. Sometimes it looks like the filler's in the wrong place, particularly around lips. You can lose definition, but that settles usually within two weeks. Um, sometimes it's it's a reaction or you know a nodule forming that gets blamed as being a, a migration. So I think the word migration is often used incorrectly. Basically, um, I know probably the one of the biggest times I see um, the word being used is for treatment is when you see the top lip has been kind of blurred in the vermilion border and the white lip is blurred yeah. together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's more down to the nature of filler, the fillers that you're using rather than the the fact that it's any filler that just happens to move. Um, and I think fillers that are very good at volumizing, they don't always integrate as quickly into the skin. Mm-hmm. So poorer quality products basically are more likely to spread. And this is one of the things I always think when people come on and say, you know, what do people think of this filler or that filler? Mm-hmm. On the day, they often all look quite similar. Um, it's what happens afterwards that the important is important. And I, I learned the hard way of, over the years that certain products just seem to lose their shape and you might say migrate, but they're actually just gently spreading 
slightly and pulling moisture to the area and it gives the sense of but it's not kind of in a ball that moves around and goes from your lip to your temple to your cheek it's it's just a gentle spread of a basically a, it's a liquid so you'd expect mm-hmm. it to move slightly um, and then it pulls moisture in as well gets a bit puffy and it just doesn't look like the shape that you wanted when you first treated them and I think that happens a lot I think it happens more with cheaper products um, and something that you learn over the years rather than in one injection mm-hmm. uh, session Okay, so product sounds like that plays a big factor here. I mean, how much do you think of it is actual technique and depth? So I've seen a few cases where people feel their tear trough filler has migrated to, I guess, bordering the nasolabial fat pad. Um, but do you think it, rather than that being something that is actually moving amongst the tissues, actually perhaps when it was placed, it wasn't in the right plane? perhaps too superficial a dynamic area such as you know the, the zygomatic arch and uh, sorry the the medial cheek might encourage the filler to move yeah um, I, to- I totally agree i think areas that move a lot you're going to um you know it's it's like uh what's that film the shawshank redemption mm-hmm. um where you, you're wondering where i'm going with this but uh, <laughs> he he digs that enormous hole all the way through and, and it's and the still don't know where you're going <laughs> with with pressure and time yeah. anything can happen okay. so a little bit of pressure over a long period of time and it will move and that doesn't matter what material you put in that's that's always been your motto for picking up women isn't it <laughs> <laughs> I remember you telling me this when I first started I've been married nearly 20 years so yeah oh no it's Ahmed I'm getting confused with Ahmed sorry I interrupted, <laughs> I interrupted you <laughs> Pressure and time. So yeah, if you uh, and I tell you a good anecdote to tell your patients who 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 will like to sometimes just blame the product or the procedure is is you can do this to your own skin. In fact, one of the first non-surgical rhinoplasties that I did was a lady who had um, allergic rhinitis and she just rubbed her nose repetitively so much that she caused a deep groove and she was just doing that fifty <laughs> times a day and then she's she essentially caused this big groove down down her nose which is very distracting and thankfully got a good difference by treating it um but that's pressure and time on your skin the same thing happens whether you are filler there it doesn't matter that it's a synthetic product it's still going to give way to repetitive pressure um and so there is your te- your technique should take that into account um and you should try and place it in a way where the pressures are minimal or easily hidden in terms of movement so um I do think in the example that you gave that the superficial uh, positioning of a filler is more likely to cause it to shift slightly so you can see it and that area doesn't hide any of your mistakes. So that's one of the reasons that, you know, classically teardrop is done on the periosteum, you inject deeply. I know more people use now a cannula. It's very hard to get it at the same depth. Um, And then you're more likely to have these little areas or these little pockets that show up and you get little bits of puffiness that uh, aren't aesthetically pleasing. Okay. Uh, one thing that I do with some of the more hydrophilic fillers, so let's take Juvederm, like Ultra 3 versus Volif, so we know Ultra 3 probably expands a bit more um, in the lip. I, I use less in the vermilion border than I would do for, for Volif, obviously making sure I'm more in the pink than the white, uh, and I might just do 0.025 threads. And I know that that might risk not getting quite as sharp border, but I don't think I tend to get as much of this migration, which actually maybe isn't migration, it's just... Well, the anatomy of the, the vermilion border is interesting because if you get it straight on the board, in fact, there's a technique, um, the four millimeter needle technique, where you try and place it literally on the pink-white border, and if you get it just right, there's a yeah. potential space and you see the filler kind of Same traveling idea. up the border. It's really cool to see, um, and it looks great on a lot of people. 
but sometimes it also you can see it enhancing the white side and the pink side equally um, and but the thing that I find interesting about that technique is if there is this potential space that will hold the filler in that plane and you'll create you have that ability for the channel to flood filler in that direction if you are slightly inferior to that channel surely those same structures might actually protect filler from going into the white part of the border mm -hmm. so it might be something to stay slightly on the pink very superficial and use that same structure that's so amazingly demonstrated in that technique to protect the white part of the lip mm -hmm. so for that reason i tend to stay on the pink part of the pink white border as as do you um, it looks very similar. If you casually look at this injection technique, they look the same. But mm. if you zoom in close, some people are just a little bit on the pink side of the pink white border. And, and like you, I experienced that as a, as a protective thing. Mm. The, the other thing you can do is use a little cotton bud and try and hold that in position. There's something I cover in detail on the Lip Masters videos. You can see these in detail if you have a look on my website, if, you, if you've not got that already. Um, but holding it down with a cotton bud and just after you've injected and giving it a moment to integrate... So fillers integrate, particularly the Vicross range, in integrates quite quickly. So you might get into tissue integration within seven minutes uh, with something like Volbella. And that's going to hopefully keep it more stable. So that's one of the things you can do to prevent that puffy top lip. Uh, that's interesting. Okay. Fine. So hopefully that has um, given you some f food for thought, uh, Mr. Tong. Okay. So the next question is from Claire, who has written, do vascular occlusions always appear instantly or can there be a delayed response? So, yeah, really interesting question. Um, I got messaged on Instagram, actually, by a, a nervous patient who'd had a treatment. I don't know why she contacted me instead of her clinician, because it was a doctor who sounded like he knew what he was doing. But, you know, maybe I was, I just posted, so I was top of mind. Um, but same question, and I'm now freaking out. How do I, uh, am I going to go blind, you know, in three years' time after this filler? Well, the short answer is probably not. I think you, you get, you, if you have an occlusion, it's pretty rapid. Um, the long answer is it is possible if you think about it that maybe a tiny drop of filler could get into a vessel um, and I have heard of one case report uh, a 42 year old lady on holiday three weeks after a procedure who suddenly lost her vision so awful, terrifying um, sorry, she, to be fair she got it back it was like amaurosis fugax how do you say that? I usually say it in my head. Uh, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. So temporary, temporary uh, visual loss that, that, that then returned. She had no other risk factors, and they put it down to um, the fact that the procedure was close-ish, three weeks, and maybe there was, um, it was a tiny amount of filler. But who knows? Because you could have. It's possible that could be something else. So we never entirely know. It does make sense to me that if you, you know, if you inject a tiny bit of filler into a vessel, not enough to occlude it, but that travels off up the capillary tree. It may cause an occlusion somewhere else, so it's possible. Yeah, and I, I can't remember if the amaurogis fugax was that's more a tran, transient ischemic attack, isn't it? A TIA, a mini stroke. So yeah. You, yeah, I guess you couldn't prove either way whether it was more related to. Yeah, the and, and well, the, the reason that that case something. came up is because the consultant who saw her said he's seen lots of people who've had filler. Now, I haven't, when I googled this and, well, on PubMed, I couldn't find anything. So I, you know, people say these things. Who knows if it's true? But. Um, I think I'm just thinking from first principles. Would it be possible? Um, okay. I think it's possible. I don't think it's the usual thing that happens. I think you nearly always know straight away. From the cases that um, we either had here, the, the small handful or ones for people you know personally, have they all tended to be 
instant the, the occlusions yeah we to my knowledge have never let one leave the building so the, the few that we've had either on the training side or in the clinic are always diagnosed straight away and then resolved straight away um, the ones that come and seek help from us from outside um, tend to have gone home first um, and then and then they start looking for help and I think that's possibly clinicians or non-clinicians quite often who aren't who aren't basically looking for those signs yeah. and and they miss it um, and then it gets worse and then you know because it's much more obvious um, but I think I, I bet of, of the ones that are severe nearly 100% of them will know within the first two or three days it's not something that creeps up on you months later as a rule yeah so something to help you sleep at night then within reason is to check cat refill very carefully before you leave and think about where the branches of that main artery go um it doesn't mean that it's not going to happen but it does mean at that point in time things look fine and there are such few cases that happen further down the line yeah that you're more likely to be okay i think that's a great tip um it's really simple it reassures your patient massively yeah it's a nice little ritual of you know i care about you and i'm checking everything safe yeah. um and and i do it i actually started doing it because of nervous patients in particular because i was pretty sure you know the, the area that i'm treating is not that close to an artery so i wouldn't worry about it mm-hmm. but if they're a nervous patient i'll just check everything anyway and they they feel reassured and it will decrease the nervous you know the the awful voicemail at three in the morning <laughs> um saying you know i think it's a different color yeah. um when, when actually it's just they're just anxious because it's three in the morning and they've just had a procedure and they tend to be anxious. So yeah, really good tip to check capillary refill after procedures, even if you're not worried. Okay. So bottom line to Claire really is that um, most cases would tend to happen straight away, not all cases. So good safety netting advice is really important. Um, I think that saves a lot of complaints is, is decent safety netting so that the, the client knows specifically uh, when and how to seek yeah and and uh, just to because i think some people worry about things like safety netting and checking pillar refill refill in case it makes patients more nervous but in fact they love it they mm-hmm. you know they like to feel cared for and the more layers of stuff you put on the more they feel like they've come to the right place okay so the next question was how long should be left between injecting an alternative filler product so yeah this this is an this is a question that comes up a lot um the official answer um, last time I looked into this in, in any detail was that there is no data. <laughs> so great. What we have to do is try and figure out from first principles, yeah. um, taking into account what each product is made of and whether they seem similar or different, um, your tolerance for medical legal risk, um, because that's also an element. There are some practitioners who refuse to treat anyone. Like I think if you're a world-famous celebrity doctor who's got a waiting list of six months you can probably afford to do that yeah i only treat my own patients is essentially what it's saying no, no one who's ever been treated anywhere else can can see me well um you know i don't think most of us are going to operate that way and these days most there are few and fewer treatment versions you know who come in so we have to um you have to have to make the decision in, in a different way um so the so from first principles are the products entirely different so is it going to make a difference if someone has had um, you know, polylactic acid, something like Sculptra injected, yeah. that's a reacting filler that generates its result over a few weeks or months. Um, are you going to add a load of Voluma on top of that? Probably not. I mean, one of the risks of that is that, you know, you might get nodules that form afterwards, which that product um, tends to do a bit more often. They can come years later. Yeah, I've had a case of that myself. Yeah. Nodules from Sculptra and she wanted uh, cheek filler on top of it. Yeah. And I turned it away. Yeah, I'm sort of like that Beverly Hills doctor you just mentioned. I'm just not <laughs> turning away, left, right, and centre. Got to be my patient, no one else's. Um, 
Yeah. So there's so that, but who knows if that's going to the the thing there is you might think well I don't think my product's going to cause a reaction. You don't really know because obviously you're generating inflammation in that area by doing the procedure. But at the same time, who's going to be responsible? Yeah. Probably the person who touched it last. Yeah. Um, so that's worth taking into account. Um, and then the other way of thinking about it is well, what are what is the penalty if it does go wrong? Um, so if you're injecting Restylane over Juvederm or the other way around, they're both hyaluronic acid products. Um, you could argue that the solution to the problem will be fairly similar and that you're confident that you can deal with those. And I, on that basis, I'm going to say that it's okay to treat. Um, so that's probably what most people do. If it's a, if it's a hyaluronic acid filler and it's, um, you know, it's been three, eight, 12 months and they definitely have an aesthetic reason to treat again, you could probably um, treat again. The, the only thing would be um, to remember that the previous treatment sometimes affects how the next treatment feels. So particularly inflammation, if you treat lips and they've already got filler in, even if it's the same product, you might get more inflammation the next time. In fact, you quite often do. Sometimes that's quite striking and it's worth knowing um, before you go into the procedure because that's regardless of mixing product is an issue. Okay. So, yeah, to summarize the answer to that, you're saying um, maybe minimum three months um, but potentially longer between alternative products. And the thinking there is you want to see whether there's been an issue from that product. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely would like to try and maintain the same product if possible. But say they've injected a product that you don't believe is that great and they haven't got much of a result, I think you could retreat if it was a hyaluronic acid. Um, if they've got an, a slightly unpleasant result, they're not, you know, lips with a bad vermilion border and you want to retreat with a good quality product, you should highlight first. Mm -hmm. I think the difficulty is when people come in and say they don't know what product's been injected, and I see that quite a lot. And it, I might feel that then lips can be highlighted, but then if you, if you genuinely have no idea what the product is and they don't... Um, and I think I've even had cases where they said, I don't even know the practitioner, it was... Um, in the back street and she's not doing it anymore <laughs> like, like so where do we stand there um but i'll be tempted these in days the actually to not yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, i'll be tempted to not not treat um feeling that it's just too medical legally risky yeah well this is this is where it comes down to your own tolerance for risk and you know we yeah. all have different tolerances so it, it depends how you feel and how you can picture yourself justifying that Okay, I think we've got time for one more. So am I able to do a planned reversal of lips one week after filler? Um, this um, delegates, but I know two weeks is the preferred, um, but they're asking if, if they can do a reversal one week after filler. And can you highlight just the top lip if the bottom lip is okay? Um, so you can probably, now the, the, what we tend to say for everything is two weeks. Mm -hmm. Now, if you try and find the half-life of... Uh, hyaluronidase in plasma it's seconds like it gets broken down in your plasma really quickly um, I can't find it in the in the interstitial space I haven't managed, managed to find a specific amount but I do I did find out that the that the fluid that bathes your cells is replaced rapidly probably within half an hour it's replaced mm -hmm. so th that what that means to me is if you and this is also why I like using the just to take a left field turn. I like using the pulsed approach to hyaluronidase during an emergency, which is you keep adding every 15, 20 minutes. Um, even if the half-life is three hours, if it was in a Petri dish, um, it's probably going to be washed out of the system quite quickly. So we do say two weeks, but I'm pretty sure that you that at a week it would be less, um, it, would, it would probably be fine. I don't think you'll have hyaluronidase in your skin two weeks, uh, a week after. 
Sorry, that wasn't quite the question, was well, it? It's um, more around, can you reverse it a week later? Yeah. I, I was thinking about, can you retreat a week later? After high laser, yeah. Well, can I guess you that's a good question as well, what you're answering. Yeah. Is if you've high laser first, then how long do you have to wait? Yeah. Which you're saying is around a week, you think would be okay? The official is two weeks. Two weeks. That's what we do in the clinic. But I'm pretty sure if you look at the science, we try and work it out, it's probably okay to do it much sooner than that. Um, we just keep it simple. You can't do it on the same day, so yeah. you might as well wait. Yeah. We usually have a wait this long than two weeks anyway. Um, so that is someone who's had high lays coming back for retreatment, but the other way round? So the, the, the thing that's worrying about that question is, what are you high lasing? Because if you're high lasing something a week afterwards, um, it's possible that you're high lasing, you're trying to get rid of inflammation. We did a poll, I haven't got the figures on my, on my, uh, off the top of my head though, it was something like, we did all the people who we've trained, there's 1500 on the closed Facebook group, and a lot of them have had treatments themselves. Clinicians are a great resource for finding out uh, what it's like for a patient, because they'll describe it to you in much more accurate terms. And about, um, I think it was around 50% of people have inflammation for two days that they notice. But of the whole group, around... Um, I think I got to, of the 50% after that, another 40% will still have inflammation a week later. So that a lot of people have inflammation yeah. that goes on for a week after a procedure. And if you have a nervous patient who's terrified of looking done, mm. and they go in saying that, and you only put like half a mil in, um, and then they get inflammation, and they want it reversed, and they're oh, like three days later saying, I want it reversed, you're probably, is a high chance that you're going to highlight something that would have settled if you just left it. Okay. So... My advice would be to hold your nerve and make sure there's no inflammation before you end up high-lasing something. And I'd say a week, minute, I wouldn't touch anyone in the first week, yeah. particularly if they're a nervous patient. If you've known them for 10 years and they've had tons of treatments and it's always been fine, and suddenly they're like, this, this one is wrong, hmm. um, maybe I'd make an exception. Yeah. Um, but a nervous patient, first time, within the first three days, once, once a reversal, they need to wait. Yeah. Okay. But you can. You can high laser them any time from a medical point of view. Like it doesn't make a difference if the filler's just gone in. Yeah. Um, but I just wouldn't. You just don't want to be taking that risk without any benefit. Yeah. And it's hard to know why um, this delegate's asking this, but it, it often is related to lumps, which obviously we've covered that in a few other podcasts. But lumps, as we know, can be due to inflammation, bruising. Um, you know, just a filler needs a good massage. So there are, there are lots of reason, lots of things to consider before you go ahead and, and high laser. And mm -hmm. as you say, a lot of that settles within the first few weeks and the second part of the question um so yeah you can highlight just the top lip if the bottom lip is okay and um, of course you can do that but obviously just be wary that you're then probably going to cause quite a bit of asymmetry the bottom lip's going to be left quite plump and then the top one particularly initially is going to look a lot more how what would you describe it flaccid <laughs> um so yeah that would you agree with that yeah it depends it depends on the aesthetics i suppose if you've if you shouldn't have treated the top lip in the first place and they had a really, then you might be able to reverse it without having to do anything to the bottom lip. Um, depends on the patient as well, because you don't want them going away and worrying about it and then having their lower lip reversed a week later, because you want to limit the amount of exposure to hyaluronidase days anyway. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a case by case. There's nothing specific that you, it's not an absolute rule that you'd always highlight both though. Um, depends depends what they look like. That's the main guide. Limiting exposure to highlays because of the risk of um, sensitization to you know allergic reactions yes yeah that would be so in theory each time you expose someone you increase the chance and the volume as well um, I did apparently infusion of hyalase I came across a weird paper that it was huge doses like 10 
probably 100 times more than we normally use, and about 30% of people have an anaphylactic reaction. Wow. But that's intravenous. I don't know what were they doing that for? I can't, I can't remember, but it's something to do with ITU-type treatments, but, but the, it was 30, I think the number was 30% of people have anaphylactic reactions. I don't know why they're flooding the system with hyaluronidase like that, but it, you know, the more you give, the more chance the, the immune system will react to it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we'll hopefully get round to the rest of the questions next week, but I think we'll have to wrap up there. So thank you very much for your wisdom, as always, Dr. Tim. Thank you, Adam. And we'll Good questions, you. everyone. Yeah, Keep them coming. <laughs> don't forget those reviews. And we'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye.